As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi. Before we begin, I want to recommend a new history podcast that's just arrived on the scene. It tells the story of a famous people, a nation of warriors and traders who appeared one day in ancient Denmark and then made their mark on the old world and the new. Allow me to introduce the History of Vikings podcast. Fresh out of the gate, the show has just released its 10th episode and is already five-star rated on iTunes. From the first origins of the Vikings and their sudden appearance at Lindisfarne, through the age of heroes and gods, and even into the nitty-gritty of Viking battle, raiders, shield maidens, Asgardian gods and longboats, it's all there in great depth and great detail. The History of Vikings podcast by Noah Tetzner. Check it out at thehistoryofvikings.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. I recommend it. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 97, What Does the Scarab Say? Today, we explore three remarkable events in the life of Amunhotep III, a great hunting trip, a diplomatic wedding, and a romantic gift surpassing any seen before. The end of Amunhotep's first decade in power was a remarkable time. Amazingly, all of these stories can be reconstructed from the same source, a series of scarabs carved and decorated, proclaiming the king's achievements. Today's episode is brought to you by Nancy Bastek. Thank you, Nancy, for your generosity. May the lioness Bast, who is your namesake, protect your home and give you strength in all your battles. To everyone listening, please enjoy the show. A shrouded sun peeked through a cloud of dust as the desert plains threw up their grit and sand in the wake of stampeding hooves. A pair of wheels, a team of horses, and a clattering wooden cart sped across gravel and sand, wheels throwing up dust in a cloud. Behind this chariot, a plume of yellow powder marked its passage. Ahead, the dunes gleamed in the sunlight. Two men stood in this chariot as it hurtled its way over stones and dirt. One, clad in a simple white kilt, gripped the leather straps which were the horse's reins. Straining mightily, he kept the chariot straight and even, providing as smooth a ride as possible for his companion. The second man, riding this chariot, was a different class altogether. 
clad in a pristine kilt and ornate chest armor, a crown flashing on his brow, this man rode with the confident majesty of a born ruler. The pharaoh of Egypt, Amunhotep III, rode shotgun in a light wooden cart as he and his driver sped across the desert. In his hands, Amunhotep carried a mighty bow with a quiver full of arrows. The year was 1392, Regnal Year 9 under the majesty of Neb Ma'at Rey Amunhotep III. The king was taking a hunting trip into the hinterlands, near the desert's edge. From his chariot, the king chased the second most dangerous prey of all. He was hunting lions. Pharaoh's cart rattled along, and soon the young ruler pointed. There, in the distance, a lion was watching. Whether on the hunt or heading to water, this apex predator paused warily as the living Horus descended towards him. Its golden eyes glimmered, its muscles tensed. In a moment, it would flee or it would fight. The lion probably did not expect the arrow which struck like lightning from the sky. Thudding painfully into its side, this arrow was a long wooden barb, piercing with great power. The lion flinched harshly, snarling, and prepared to charge his aggressor. But then, another hit. The lion collapsed and its vision clouded. Down for the count, its life came to its end. According to his own records, King Amunhotep III went on many lion hunts during his first decade in power. From year 1 to year 10, the king claims to have hunted approximately 100 lions. That's about one every five weeks on average, a horrific rate of hunting which probably caused terrible damage to the local population. Lions are extinct in Egypt and the Near East today, and it's not hard to see why. With pharaohs and elites ranging across the region taking their manly prizes, the kings of the Pride Lands had no chance. Now they are gone, and only their memory remains. The chariot skidded to a halt, and the hunter pharaoh disembarked, leaving the cart to confirm his kill. The driver remained tending the horses, keeping the chariot ready for his lord's return. The kill was complete, and Amunhotep had claimed another trophy to proclaim his power. Now, the weird thing is, records of lion skins, or lion products, are mostly unknown in Egypt. So we're not sure if they actually used these lions for anything, or if they just hunted them for sport. Some lions could be kept as pets, and in 2004, a French expedition to Saqqara found a mummified lion buried during the Christian era. But in the Pharaonic record, kings of the Pride Lands are few and far between. Despite their prominence in writing, lions are a rarity in the archaeology. Amunhotep checked his kill, confirmed it, and then returned to his cart. The young pharaoh hopped back into his chariot, the ancient equivalent of a sports car, and carried on into the desert. For the rest of the day, and perhaps several more to come, the king pursued his targets across the land. Lion after lion fell to his arrows. The lion hunts of Amunhotep III are a storied event, if you count royal propaganda as a story of any sort. The king issued a series of proclamations carved on small stone scarabs to relay the prowess that he displayed in the hunt. These scarabs, which show up throughout the Near East and now reside in many different museums, tell the tale with a sparse but eloquent simplicity. 
The number of lions brought by his majesty from his own shooting from year one until year ten, one hundred and two fierce lions. End quote. Simple and to the point. The actual message of the scarab, the reason for its publication, takes up just two lines. Most of the text is occupied by the lengthy titles and names of the king, and a shout out to his majestic wife, Queen T. So the lion hunt scarab is more of a name of the king and his wife scarab featuring lions. This is the trend of all of the scarabs made for this king, a collection which we are going to explore today. Back in episode 91, The Mighty Bulls, we saw how the king undertook a hunting of bulls corralled in a pen near the city of Memphis. Eight years later, a more mature and energetic ruler was able to roam the desert hinterlands in search of a more prideful target. But both events are depicted in the same unique way, a sparse text accompanied by the names of Amunhotep and T, carved on the surface of a decorative stone scarab. The scarabs of Amunhotep III are the closest thing we get to an official history of the king's life. Since Egyptian pharaohs rarely practiced the kind of annual note-taking that Western historians like so much, we've had to look at this story more holistically. The scarabs are quite an interesting example, because they may tell us very different and unexpected things, if we just know how to look. The lion hunt and bull hunt scarabs of the king were all issued in the same year. In regnal year 11, the king commissioned an entire series of these scarabs. They come in five different categories, lion hunting, bull hunting, the lineage of Queen T, a monument built for her pleasure, and a diplomatic marriage. These scarabs, viewed together, tell how Amunhotep, king of Egypt, represented himself to the wider world. They are an incredibly valuable resource. Amunhotep finished his lion hunt and returned to his palace at Memphis. The king strode into his hall, porters carrying the corpse of his prey. The courtiers and Queen T applauded his prowess. Not long after this, the king received word of a whole new kind of trophy. Year 9 finished, and regnal year 10 began around 1391 BCE. At home, Amunhotep and his family were living in comfort and style. Far away, the Egyptian empire was settled in a period of peace and prosperity, the likes of which they had not seen for generations. From Sinai to Syria, the lands and peoples of Canaan were protected by the might of Egyptian arms. Arms and diplomacy. For three generations now, rulers of Egypt had combined their military domination with a softer kind of power. Diplomatic relationships and correspondence had been used to form a network of communication and cooperation throughout the Near East. Pharaohs like Thutmose III and Thutmose IV had brought foreign powers into their embrace and treated some of them like brothers. To secure those bonds and ensure peace, those pharaohs had even accepted brides, princesses, who came from distant lands to marry the king of the Nile. In 1391, it was time for Amunhotep to get his own foreign princess. (laughs) 
In regnal year 10, the court of Egypt gathered together for a special event. They were gathered at the palace in the city of Memphis, and they were dressed in their finest clothing, assembled around the gardens and courtyards of the royal household. They were here to welcome a princess. The princess in question came from a distant land, a land we call Mitanni. Today, we might think of Mitanni as a kingdom encompassing parts of northern Iraq, Kurdistan, and eastern Syria. In 1391, Mitanni was a multi-ethnic kingdom ruled by the Hurrians, a people of great power and skill in war. The Hurrian kings of Mitanni had once been Egypt's greatest enemies in the Near East. Now, they were among its strongest allies. Thanks to a marriage between a Mitanni princess and Amunhotep's father, Tutmose IV, the two great empires were bonded in matrimony. Today, Amunhotep III would renew that bond. The king of Mitanni, named Shudtarna II, sent his daughter to the land of Egypt. He did this after a lengthy period of correspondence, in which the pharaoh requested a new bride. The Mitanni referred to this correspondence as pleading many times. Apparently, no fewer than six messages went back and forth before the marriage was approved. Perhaps the Mitanni were waiting for a satisfactory price for their daughter's hand. Whatever the cause, Shuttarna dispatched his daughter to Egypt, and an alliance was renewed between two great powers. Let's meet this princess. One day, on the docks of a royal harbour, perhaps Memphis or somewhere in the Delta, the courtiers of Egypt watched as an ornate ship arrived at the head of a flotilla. This ship, grand and resplendent, carried the princess of Matani to her new home. In the other ships, the princess's entourage sailed with her. The princess of Matani was named Gilu Kepa, although the scarabs Egyptianized this into Kir Gipa. I will use Gilu Kepa because that is the conventional spelling but you will occasionally find her referenced as Kirgipa. Same lady, different versions of the name. Cool? Cool. Gilu Kepa was about 15 years old, and came to Egypt as the daughter of a great king. Befitting her status, she arrived with a retinue of women, ladies-in-waiting to be her harem. This entourage was huge, 317 women decked out in the finery of the kingdom of Matani. As you can imagine, this would have been a sight to behold. Based on later references to bridal prices and gifts between the great powers, we can guess that Gilu Kepa brought a massive hoard of treasures. This could have included items like jewellery, necklaces, pottery, and ceramic vessels for ointment or decoration. It might also have included mirrors of silver and gold, metal combs, precious stones galore, especially lapis lazuli and even perhaps high-quality linen dresses and shirts, in multicoloured cloth. These were all durable items, and easily transported, which conveyed a sense of wealth and prestige to the bearer. In other words, Gilu Kepa's entourage was one that dazzled the eye, and carried the wealth of their homeland on their backs. Egyptian artists did their best to capture these kind of images when they painted them in tombs, they recognised the distinctive features of Syrian dress, and you can always tell a person from this region apart from a normal Asiatic when they appear. The Hurrian people from Mitanni are not singled out, but simply lumped in together with Syrians and people of the Levant. 
Still, the Egyptians captured some great details. Egyptian tomb painters showed Syrians and Levantines wearing ornate decorated clothes. According to scenes like that, Gilu Kepa might have worn a woolen dress with heavy folds on the lower half. Images of women from the Levant show them wearing full-length dresses, with a sort of blouse at the top and three layers or tiers on the lower half. They wear short sleeves, and the fringes of their dresses are coloured in blue and red. The hair is worn long, draped down the back. The jewellery or ornaments are not detailed, but might have involved beads of carnelian, lapis lazuli, gold and silver. Honestly, we don't have that much to go on for this specific situation, but enough traces survive to give us a faint image. An image of a long-haired woman dressed in full-length wool decorated in jewellery that glinted and shined in the Egyptian sunlight. On an occasion of great ceremony, Gilu Kepa was resplendent, an ornament from her people and to her new husband. The Egyptian text which describes Gilu Kepa's arrival captures this sense of splendour quite well. Like the lion-hunting scarabs, the record of Gilu Kepa is simple, even sparse, but the composer does include a nice flourish. Referring to the coming of the princess and her ladies-in-waiting, the writer calls it a biait. Loosely translated, biait means marvel. So the arrival of this woman and her companions was, quote, a marvel brought to his majesty, Kirgipa, or Gilu Kepa, the daughter of the prince of Naharin, Mitanni, along with 317 women of her harem. End quote. The arrival of Gilu Kepa, princess of Mitanni, was an event unlike any in recent memory. The writer, although constrained, captures the scene as best he can. Gilu Kepa arrived at the palace, and with her vast retinue, disembarked to meet her new husband. Amunhotep III, now 22 years old, was resplendent in his regalia. With youth and fitness on his side, the king was a shining specimen of the power of Egypt. Around her, Gilu Kepa would be greeted by the flashes of gold, electrum, bronze and ivory which marked the elites of Egypt's court. A crowd of unfamiliar people, a city perched in an unfamiliar environment, everywhere heavy clouds of incense, and the smells of a new city. Gilu Kepa was far from home. Chances are, it was all a bit dizzying. The Egyptians, too, were probably very curious at this marvel before them. Gilu Kepa would have seemed quite unusual, wearing woolen garments, totally unsuited to the heat, and ornate jewellery of a style rarely seen in Egypt. She was a symbol of a distant, foreign people. Add to that her skin perhaps a light mocha compared to Egyptians' deep red-brown, and Gilu Kepa must have seemed quite, pardon the word, exotic. To the Egyptians, who met such foreigners only sporadically, the sight of this foreign princess would have been a cause for curiosity and excitement. If we think of royal processions even today, whole crowds turn up to catch a glimpse of the Blue Bloods. Perhaps the Egyptians too crowded the riverbank in order to glimpse this stranger from a strange land. Gilu Kepa, Princess of Mitanni, was introduced to Amunhotep, King of Egypt. From there, it was time to meet her new in-laws. First and foremost, Gilu Kepa was presented to the Queen T, Great of Praise, who ruled at Amunhotep's side. A formidable presence, 
covered in costly jewels and the finest linen, T, now about twenty years old, was at the height of her beauty and influence. A tall crown perched on her head, her brow was guarded by a uraeus. If Gilu Kepa knew what was good for her, she would have shown the utmost deference to this great lady. Gilu Kepa, meet T. T, Gilu Kepa. I will assume that the foreign princess bowed in submission to the Queen of Egypt. We have no way of knowing if this was a friendly meeting, or one laced with the icy undercurrents of competition. But what we do know is that Gilu Kepa was seriously overshadowed by T. After ten years on the throne, the great lady was ensconced in power, and more than a match for any foreign stripling. If the queen was bothered by this new arrival, she did not need to be. The balance of power between queen and princess was a foregone conclusion, but it is still worth exploring. It is clear that Gilu Kepa came to the court as a second-tier wife, not one to match the existing power of tea. Apart from the obvious, we can confirm this relationship in two ways. Firstly, apart from the scarabs which record her arrival, Gilu Kepa is almost totally invisible in the artistic and archaeological record. If not for the scarabs, and a couple of references in some diplomatic letters, we would have no way of knowing that she existed. She has no known tomb, no known burial, an archaeological cipher, which is surprising when we think of the tomb of the three princesses that married King Tutmos III just 60 years earlier, episode 73. It's pretty clear that the princess arrived in splendour, lived in comfort, but still disappeared into anonymity. Queen T, meanwhile, simply shone in glory from day one to the very end. The other way we can tell that T overshadowed her counterpart is in the text of the scarabs themselves. The record of Gilu Kappa's arrival opens with the usual formalities, the names and titles of Amunhotep. But before it gets to Gilu Kappa, the scarab takes a moment to extol, quote, The great king's wife, T, may she live. The name of her father is Yuya, the name of her mother is Chuyu, end quote. Only then, after those introductions and praises, do we get the brief description of Gilu Kappa's arrival. So, from the beginning, the dynamic was set. Queen T was in control of the situation. This dynamic is fascinating to think about, but the supreme triumph of Queen T is a bit of a shame. It means that we have probably lost a lot of information about the princess, where she lived, what she did, where she was buried. All these things are a mystery, a wonderful, marvellous mystery. Gilu Kappa is an intriguing figure, and when we think about her life, it's easy to see what we might be missing. Gilu Kappa probably had a hard time of it. She not only experienced the shock of moving to an entirely new country, but also the challenge of fitting into a social order already dominated by powerful women. Add to that the economic uncertainty of her new position, and the ultimate question of where, if anywhere, she would be buried. It can't have been easy for her. Before we move on, I will quickly touch on one small fact that might survive. This is something that occurred to me while I was researching other subjects, and it's just an idea that might be interesting. I noticed it while I was researching Amunhotep's great mortuary temple for episode 96. You see, 
In the midst of that temple, a pair of stone stelae described the various monuments built by the king. Between references to Karnak, Luxor, and the grandeur of his cult sanctuary, Amunhotep inserted this little gem, quote, The temple is surrounded by Syrian settlements, inhabited by the children of the princes. End quote. Syrian settlements, children of princes. What a coincidence, right? This little sentence, almost a throwaway in the writings of Amunhotep, makes me wonder if the Princess Gilu Kepa and her 300-plus attendants were eventually settled in their own town or palace at western Thebes. We know that the mortuary temple here was closely connected with Amunhotep's own palace in the region, a palace called Malkata, which we'll come back to later. That palace was a sprawling complex with apartments, leisure areas, and shrines. It's not unreasonable to suspect that the princess of Syria, along with her compatriots, were perhaps settled in their own apartments somewhere in this region. Of course, Amunhotep was speaking broadly. We know that the 18th dynasty was a time when foreigners, especially royalty from city-states and kingdoms in Canaan, were brought to Egypt for education and assimilation into the pharaonic mindset. Princes came to learn the Egyptian way, and they took their understanding back to their homeland as loyal servants of the pharaoh. So when Amunhotep refers to children of the princes and Syrian settlements, he might just be connecting with that general practice. Still, the coincidence of a Syrian princess and her enormous retinue showing up around this time makes me wonder if the statement has more literal truth than we would assume. So it's just speculation, but I would be curious to see if future excavations turn up anything related to this. Gilu Kepa arrived in Egypt around 1391 BCE. A mere teenager, she came as a secondary bride for the pharaoh, a subordinate wife who was there, mostly, to secure the political relationship with her homeland. Far away, her father, Shutarna, the king of Mitanni, could congratulate himself on an alliance secured. We will leave Gilu Kepa here. Sadly, this will be her only appearance in the podcast. As I said, we know nothing about her life once she was in Egypt, and her legacy is blank. Which is a damn shame, in my opinion. Gilu Kepa is a mystery. I wish we knew more about her. It seems that Gilu Kepa's arrival coincided with a period of activity within the royal family that was quite far and above everything that had gone before. After the break, we're going to see how Gilu Kepa's arrival coincided with the great activities of Queen T, specifically monuments which she and her husband put together to glorify herself and her family. Back in a moment. In 1391 BCE, a foreign princess arrived at the court of Egypt. 
Travelling from Syria, she came to be a bride for the pharaoh. Just 15 years old, this Syrian lady was wedded to the king and entered his harem. The arrival of a new wife might have been threatening to the established women of the court, but it's unlikely. The great lady, T, royal wife, was more than secure. Her power over the king could not be swayed by some diplomatic floozy. Still, at around the same time, Queen T began to make her own political moves, moves that would further cement her authority and that of her family in the land of the Nile. In this last chapter, we will see how Queen T and her parents began to build on their power now that they were secure in their new position. It had been an interesting 10 years for T. From the age of 10 to the age of 20, she had spent her days in the royal palace. She had seen her husband grow and mature into an accomplished pharaoh, a warrior, a builder, and a hunter. Now, he would prove his credentials as a partner. Not long after the foreign princess came to court, T pops up in the written record once again. Again, it is a carved scarab which records this event, and proclaims to the world how the pharaoh treasured his powerful wife. Sometime in the first decade, perhaps year nine, Amunhotep commissioned a new monument for the glory of his wife. This was no ordinary monument. It wasn't a temple, it wasn't a palace, it wasn't even a tomb, or a statue. Rather, it was a lake, an artificial lake designed and built in the name of the queen. Quote, Regnal year 11, under the majesty of Horus, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neb Ma'at Rey, the son of Rey, Amunhotep, ruler of Thebes, who is given life. The great royal wife, Ti, may she live. Her father's name is Yuya, and her mother's name is Chuyu. His majesty commanded the making of a lake for the great royal wife, Ti, may she live, in her town of Jaruka. The lake's length is 3,700 cubits, and its width is 700 cubits. End quote. This is a great scarab, detailed, precise, and informative. It tells us a lot, so let's unpack it, starting with the digging of a vast new monument to the great royal wife. Around year 9, perhaps early year 10, workers gathered in a place called Jaruka. We're not exactly sure where this is, but the most likely guess is the region of Akmim, Queen T's hometown. Jeruka might be the place that she was born, or a region nearby that was suitable for this kind of project. Wherever it was, the workers gathered to begin a truly immense work. The lake which they were digging would be about 3,700 cubits long, approximately 1.9 kilometres. The width was 700 cubits, about 364 metres. We're not sure what shape it was, perhaps a rectangle, perhaps not. Presumably it was connected to the Nile by a canal, and might have been used as an irrigation tool. A lake of this size could have expanded the floodplain significantly, or helped divert water away from a town and protect it from flooding. Either way, it was clearly a grand project a lake dug for the benefit of a community, and the glory of just one person. I would have loved to see this thing when it was ready. Based on what we know of other pools, pools at Karnak, pools at Amana, this was perhaps not a deep lake. The point was to provide a splendid adornment to the local town or temple, 
not to recreate a deep water pool. Realistically, the lake may have only been about one to two metres deep, just enough for a small boat to sail upon. The fact that boats did sail upon it, we know from the second part of the Scarab's text. Quote, His Majesty celebrated the opening of this lake in the third month of the Arquette season, day 16. The procession of His Majesty in the royal barge, Aten Chehen, the dazzling sun disk, was in the lake. End quote. It's nice that we get such a specific date for the inauguration ceremony, day 16, month 3 of the Arquette season. Roughly speaking, this would be around mid to late October, 1390 BCE. So Queen T's Lake was officially opened about 6 to 12 months after the arrival of the foreign princess. Coincidence? Probably, but the ceremony was a good opportunity, which the Queen did not waste. At the same time that scribes and artists were making the scarabs commemorating Gilu Kappa's arrival, they were also making scarabs which recorded just how far Amunhotep could go to celebrate the woman who was his wife. The Lake of Queen Ti was a physical manifestation of her influence, and the status she held in the court. Of all the queens of Dynasty 18 so far, Ti was showing more influence, sooner than any who came before. The royal family celebrated the construction of the new lake. By now, the family had grown to a respectable size. As of year 11, 1390 BCE, T and Amunhotep had produced at least three children in their first decade. There was their son, Tutmos, now about 10 years old, and passed the most dangerous period of childhood. He was a reliable heir, and his education was starting to advance. Soon, he would be ready to participate in the affairs of state. We will see that in an upcoming episode. There were also two princesses, Sit Amun and Isis. They were about nine and eight respectively, passing out of the danger zone and soon to enter physical maturity. Before too long, it would be time to find them active roles in the court. Would they be married off or given jobs serving their father? Well, both but that's a story for another day. The royal family gathered to watch as Amunhotep and T sailed across an artificial lake built for the glory of the queen. With the sun, the Aten, shining down upon them, the court could watch the king and queen sail by and think, these are grand rulers. The gods above surely smiled on T and Amunhotep. They were blessed in the eyes of Amun. As regnal year 11 began, Queen T and Amunhotep were sitting pretty. Behind them, a court of officials and family members watched as the royal couple continued to expand their power and build upon their previous achievements. Some of these courtiers were, in their own right, extremely influential. On the next narrative episode, 98, we will explore the lives of Queen T's parents, who were incredibly prestigious. We will also meet her brother and her son, and see how the royal family functioned together and in society. That's episode 98, coming soon. But first, the podcast is approaching its 100th episode. To celebrate, I thought it would be great to answer some questions you may have about Egyptian history. 
Between now and the end of June, send me your questions. They can be on any topic you like, and I will do my best to answer them in a short, accessible manner. So have a think, and when you're ready, fire some questions to egyptpodcast at gmail.com. That's egyptpodcast at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by Online Great Books, an online course with one simple goal, to help you engage with the books that changed history. Develop a habit of connecting with great works in an easy program of just a few hours reading per week. Online Great Books uses the Socratic method, focused on discussion, to help you engage and make your philosophical upskilling a breeze. This course is available for a limited time and is worth checking out. Online Great Books curates a program of famous works. They select the best translations and will ship the hard copy to you for easy reading. From there, it's an easy to understand journey as they guide you through the development of books which changed their worlds. The course is designed to help you stay on track with tools like text or email reminders, simple achievable weekly goals, and a supportive community to help you reach your personal development aims. There are even monthly online seminars where you can discuss that month's book with like-minded readers. Your seminar is led by a host trained in the Socratic method, and the key word is discussion, not teaching. It's your journey, and the course will help you to develop your own personal philosophy as you respond to these works in your own way. You can also connect with friends who are doing the course, and over time develop a personal understanding of philosophy and the thought patterns of history. Enrollment is open for a limited time, so make sure to get in fast. Visit onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash EGY and enter the promo code EGY to get 25% off your first three months. That affiliate code will also help this podcast pay its bills, so you'll be helping me out too. Remember, enrollment is limited, so don't skip out on the opportunity. Check it out at onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash EGY. Hope to see you there.